0: What is Advent? That word we use around the church, it uh, is a season on the universal church's calendar. Just as the Jewish people had uh, gatherings and festivals and celebrations uh, throughout the year to remember the work of of the Lord and His promises, uh, the celebration and preparation in the modern church leading up to our celebration of the birth of Christ is what we call Advent. The word Advent means the arrival, the arrival of the, the promised Messiah, uh, the royal Redeemer. In the fall of man, the very beginnings of, of creation, the fall of man, God promised a Redeemer, a Messiah. And so through uh, the 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 pages of, of history and time, we see this account in the Old Testament of, of types and shadows pointing to the royal redeemer, the promised one of God. And so his arrival is so game-changing. It's so life-changing when we rightly understand the gospel. And so what a joy it is to be together, to look to God's word together. Um, I, I want to encourage you to really lean in this Christmas and and specifically to this little mini-sermon series we'll do in these four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, to understand with me that that Jesus' birth is... Not just in a nice annual tradition and that we've come to love because we love the season and the traditions that come with it. Those things are nice. But Jesus' birth is the arrival of life and hope and peace and joy. And, and, and all that we need ultimately is found in Christ And so each week here at Disciples Church, we'll light an an Advent candle and and draw to remembrance these game-changing realities that Jesus' arrival means to us. uh, That ultimately, those whom God has ordained would believe in Him. We would put our faith in Him. We'd be born again, redeemed by the blood of the Messiah, victorious with Him in a resurrection like His My encouragement is don't let yourself just engage the holiday season and and, and all of its typical comings and goings, but lean in to really grab hold of the life-changing good news that we celebrate in the arrival of Jesus Christ and his birth. Um, You making it a priority to be here today is a step in that direction, to, to wake up here December 1st, the first Sunday of the month to prioritize in your week's calendar and all of your gatherings and comings and goings for this Thanksgiving holiday to, to be in church on Sunday morning. This, this offering of first fruits of your schedule is a way to worship God. It's a way to show the watching world that for you, uh, this is a non-negotiable. I'm going to be with the saints in church on Sunday morning, hearing the shepherd's teaching, growing and maturing, worshiping the King. Uh, that He would be exalted. And so, before we dive into the text, we go with me to prayer. Uh, let's look to join God in what He wants to do in and through us this this Christmas. Father, we thank You for this time. I thank You for the blessing that it's been to get to know new families and, and people, uh, loved ones of some of our own families and, and some of those that You, in Your perfect sovereignty, God, are, are ordaining to find their way here to Disciples Church. That that would be much less about us, but much more about you. Um, that we would be faithful in preaching and teaching the word and uh, in, in, in executing what you've called us to do, Lord. That, that you are not only our Savior, but our Lord. That we belong to you. Uh, that, that we long to serve you and make much of your holy name. It's the very purpose for our days. And so I pray that even with uh, the, the normalcies of Christmas and the traditions that come with that, that you would do something very unique this year and breaking through. You give us a, a view of, of just how wonderfully life-changing Jesus' arrival is and what that means for us individually and collectively as the body of Christ. We, we want to make much of you in this time and, and look forward to what you have in store for us. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, I long to take a fresh look at the advent uh, and um, we try to do that in some different ways and and sometimes we'll focus in on the narrative of what the new testament gives us uh, we've taken time to look at the prophecies that lead up to christ and some of those different uh, angles of approach and this year i wanted to just see what scripture highlights about what is so special and important about the arrival of christ in that he is the light of the world the the theme of light is very around us at christmas time the the lights the twinkling lights and not only in the day but at night and and i just pray that all of that would direct your heart and mind to the centrality of christ and what this is all ultimately for this big month-long party that we spend so much time and energy planning setting up doing and we wouldn't miss the one for whom the party is for. And uh, so it's just my prayer that, uh, that this year's focus on the light of the world would be a great blessing to you. Jesus said it himself most clearly. The Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Each week, I want us to climb into different facets of what Jesus' arrival as the light of the world is to us, um, and and how utterly life-changing it is, what good news it is, especially for those of us who would trust in Him for liberty from our guilt and sin, and for eternal life with God. Today, I want to look at a very famous Passage: The opening words of the Gospel of John, John 1, verse 1 through 5. And specifically, I want us to see and savor the source of light and life as a foundation for where we'll go the rest of the month. I pray it's a blessing to you. Look with me at the text. John 1, 1 through 5 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, if I were to read this to you and you had no prior knowledge as to who John is referring to when he says the Word, you'd probably quickly want to raise your hand and say for clarity, who's the Word here? And to help us answer this, we are um, effort to be faithful here at Disciples Church to let Scripture interpret Scripture that we would uh, put away any man-made tendency to want to put on the text what we want it to say. And so one of those practices is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so one of the clarities we're given here is we find in the opening words of the letter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Here we learn that Jesus is the spokesperson for the Godhead. Jesus is the Son of God. He is, as John refers to Him, as the Word. We also read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Most simply put, that means that He is God's alphabet, the one who spells out the deity, the one who utters the Word of God, even clearer, perhaps, is the testimony of John later in this chapter. John 1.18, when it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referencing Jesus, He has made Him known. John calling Jesus the Word is his way of declaring this biblical truth that Jesus is the spokesperson of God, the one who has declared or revealed the word, the everlasting God. Uh, this is huge when we consider the vastness, when we consider the incomprehensibleness of God, that God ordains to make himself known through Jesus, the Word. Another layer John gives us here is in calling Jesus the Word. It's his way of saying that he sees that the words of Jesus are the truth of God. The person of Jesus is the truth of God. And together they are in such a unified way saying that Jesus himself, in his coming, in his working, in his teaching, in his dying, in his rising, is the final and decisive message of God quickly before we get to the main emphasis I want to mind down into today that we find in verse 4 and 5 I want to help us have good context for God's Word so let's look at verse 1 through 3 in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word, as we've clearly defined as Jesus, was with God, the Father. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. without Him was not anything made that was made. I mean, we, could, we could mine down for weeks into the fullness of this text, this beautiful opening dialogue of John and his gospel. But for time and clarity's sake, let me point out that this holds high that the unity of the Godhead. That God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equally god Distinct in roles and persons, but one God. So as we gather to celebrate Jesus' birth, it's important that you see that Jesus' existence did not begin with conception like ours did. That would be a biblical heresy. Jesus has eternally existed because Jesus is eternally God. Paul says that clearly in, in his letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians 1:17, speaking of Jesus saying he is before all things. Now the author of Hebrews says it clearly in Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a critical foundation to lay at Christmas time for our Christmas time worship and our general theology of God in general, our our understanding of who God is, that we see Him rightly, that we see Him biblically, that we see the eternality of Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have always been, are right now, and always will be. That is what is meant by they are eternal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is eternal. Everything that is, is because of God, and therefore for God. We see that lifted high in Romans 11, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So when one ponders the source of life itself, we must see that it is found in God, who is not created, but is eternal, who has no beginning and has no end. The source of life is found in the holy, eternal, triune Godhead. This is John's emphasis in verse 4. In Him was life. Here you have the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. And we're going to get into layers of this opening chapter next week, specifically looking at the incarnation, Jesus' arrival. God the Son who put on flesh is the focus of the birth. But in preparation for that, John's doing something here that we must do also at Christmas. And the celebration of Jesus' birth and the importance of the arrival of Christ and what God had ordained to do in redemption for us, that that foundation in Jesus that we see is eternal, that in Christ is life, that in God is life, that we consider the creator, the source of life itself as we know it. Acts seventeen twenty four through 25 The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by men nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See God as the source of life. God is life and is the life giver. Church, we must see and savor this mighty truth that life is not an accident. It's not a collision of atoms. Randomness did not form highly complex beings that fight sickness and heal wounds and diseases. A collision of matter did not create highly intelligent beings that can think and create and procreate. Oh, how deep mankind's sin is when the human race works so hard to put the cause of life on anything but the life-giver himself. Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Creature life is found in God. For Acts 17.28 says, In Him we live and move and have our being. I often like to remind us that when you're sinfully or selfishly having a pity party and kind of looking at life through a wrong angle and maybe thinking, God, where are you? Your ability to even process those thoughts is the activity of God to sustain your very life. That He's more present than you know how to even give Him credit. Consider that with me. And, and, and so how guilty we are in our sin of making so much of life about us. We, we make this about us and so little about God. And no wonder our whole spectrum, our whole view of how we go about our days gets skewed. We're desperate for this truth. We must stop and consider what is life? Because even if we give God the credit for making all that is, if we're honest... We often take life for granted. We take for granted the sweetness, the wonder, the absolute gift of life. We take it for granted until it hangs in the balance. So let's slow down for a moment and climb into it. What is life? See, we often don't really have life in correct view. Because we're guilty all too often of making our days and our longings making life about the stuff, the happenings. We cheapen the simple, sweet thing that life is with all that we cram in and put into our lives. Jesus himself warns us of this. He says in Luke twelve fifteen, He said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It is very ironic that in the very season, we effort to slow down to celebrate the arrival of the light of the world, the one who is life the light of life itself. The only one who can provide for us new life, eternal life. Because of His perfect work on the cross, His death, His resurrection. The only one through whom we can be forgiven and not held guilty by, for our sin. It is during this time of year that we actually become more consumed with the acquiring or the giving of possessions than any other time of year. May our time this morning help us slow to consider the light of life itself. To be a true and lasting help to fight our sinful temptation, to make our joy or our reason for living, or our reason for the season, stuff. I mean, how often have you heard someone say, or been guilty of saying it yourself, we hope to be able to have enough money this year so we can have a nice Christmas. Do you see our fleshly tendency to make it about the celebration of stuff when the celebration is about the arrival of the light of life. Even in our ongoing habits and practices we, we do the very thing that Jesus is warning us not to do. I'm not saying there's not a righteous way to celebrate Jesus and still give and receive. I'm not going there. But but you you know what I'm getting at and how quickly it consumes and becomes the definition of a good Christmas or not. Christian, we gather, we sing, we light candles, we break bread around dinner tables in the cold of winter to celebrate the arrival of the light that is life. Jesus Christ. Amen? Today I want to help us return our focus, our gratitude to the life giver. The one who is the very source of life. Look with me at verse 1 and 2 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is doing this amazing thing to testify of The time before time, when nothing existed but God, and is giving us somewhat of a glimpse to describe and show a divine fellowship, an intimacy, pure and united in every way, the eternal. Perfect, complete, all powerful existence of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God has always existed and enjoyed the perfect harmony and relationship of the Trinity. And it is out of this amazing relationship. That anything is created and we are created. Therefore, there is the purest picture of life. I want you to see that God is the source of life. As John says in verse 4 in him was life. Are you looking to live? I mean really live life. Then you're looking for Jesus. Not only is He the life giver, He is life. May we worship God alone for He is truly worthy of all of our life and praise. Look with me at John's next emphasis in the second part of verse 4. And the life was the light of men This is equivalent to saying God is the light of men. It's right in line with what John will say in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Speaking of Jesus, the one who's given light to everyone is coming. There's that talk about his arrival, and we'll get into the details of that next week. There's two ways that we need to see clearly, according to Scripture, that Jesus gives mankind enlightenment. John is emphasizing here the first, that every human is morally enlightened. All men have the law written on their hearts, Scripture says. Their conscience bears witness. Romans 2.15 and other places in Scripture, giving reference to the present of the light of life. There's an enlightening that Jesus is to mankind in an all-encompassing way, and the life was the light of men. This is the enlightenment that helps us see that all of mankind is aware of God, even if they say they're not. Paul testifies in the opening parts of Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse what does that mean? It means an atheist, one who professes they do not believe in God, is simply making a decision to choose to not believe in God. Why? Because they truly know that God is real, according to Scripture. According to Scripture, every self proclaimed atheist, every human being knows there is a God. And Scripture says, and they are without excuse. An atheist is like a person then who says, the Son doesn't exist. It is a person who says, I see and I feel the evidence of the blazing sun every day. But I refuse to admit that it's real. The evidence of God and his invisible attributes are made manifest in his creation. And every human being sees and experiences that every day. It's only in true and deep sin that there's a choice, a decision to say, but I don't give credit to God, even though I know he's there so much so that I'll tell you I don't believe He's real. Holy Scripture says they're without excuse. They're still held accountable for sin. Church, the light of God is upon all men. They are morally enlightened in this way and therefore held accountable with what they do with their lives. The, The irony is that the atheistic person who reasons in sin that God doesn't exist, watch this, is only able to reason and think at all, because the very source of their ability to reason and think is the illumination of God upon them. The late, great Augustine referred to God as the sun of minds. The sun, like the blazing sun. The illumination of minds. And Herman, Herman Bobbink explained, or expanded on Augustine's point, when he says, this means, in the unchangeable light of truth, our minds see and make judgments about all things, In the unchanging truth itself, the the rational and the intellectual mind perceives all things, and in the same light it judges all things. Just as with the physical eye we cannot see anything unless the sun sheds its rays over it, so neither can we see any truth except in the light of God, which is the sun, the illumination of our knowledge. God is that source. We we don't navigate any of this without His illumination, without the light of life in general. That's the working of God. God's due the credit of that. Psalm 4.6 Who will show us some good? lift up the light of your face upon us o lord the greek word that john uses here in john 1:4 is not in reference to spiritual illumination or spiritual life it's in reference to physical life now why does that clarity matter well it's really really critical Because we need to be oh so careful to not believe the unbiblical theory that there is in every man a spark of the divine or spiritual life. That's not what Scripture teaches. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 The result of Adam's sin, our federal head, means original sin. It means every Person, born of man and woman, is, is cursed. We're, we're conceived in sin, is what Scripture teaches us. Nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. That is in my flesh. Titus 1.15 To the corrupt and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. That depravity runs through every part of who we are. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? This is why someone's uh, challenging the authoritative Word of God with their own feelings. We need to love them enough to say your feelings are corrupt. Your feelings at their core are wicked. We have to check what feels right with the authority of the Word of God. Apart from well, let me say this first. In, in all those passages I just mentioned, Scripture is not denying that unbelievers can do good in human society in some sense. But Scripture does clearly deny that an unbeliever can do anything spiritually good or in terms of having a relationship with the Holy God. Apart from the work and the atonement of Jesus Christ, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, all unregenerate people According to Ephesians 4:18, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. That's speaking of that original sin, that total depravity that runs through us. I say all this to make clear that while there is the illumination of life upon all mankind in the physical sense, in our ability to think and our ability to see God, by which all men are held accountable the illumination of spiritual life is for only those who are saved in Christ. We need to have that clear. We need to see that unbelievers are darkened because the light that is spiritual life is not in them. We must understand before moving on, the natural man is still responsible before God. I think I said that a moment ago. I'll say it again. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's Romans 14, 12. So while every human has been given the light of men from the life giver, we are accountable before God, even in our guilty and spiritually dead state. We need to see this rightly because it builds up our highest need for the Redeemer. The arrival of Christ, the promised Messiah, is the answer to the spiritually darkened and damned life by which we're held guilty for our sin. As Paul says, we're without excuse. Look with me at verse 5, though. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, this is a, a general re- reference to the existence of life among creation. It's a reference to the creation. Even take a second to remember with me the first verses of Genesis 1, 1 through 1-5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was, hovering, was over the face of the deep. The deep. God spoke, and He illuminated space and time. Think about that. The illuminating work of God is truly a beautiful thing. God is truly worthy of our praise for each day He causes us to live. To wake you up this morning was a gift from God. That the sun illuminates our space on this rock is the work of God. I don't know if you were up before sunrise this morning. I was driving here at sunrise. The sunrise was magnificent. The sky was so orange. And what's so cool about that is that just points us to how magnificent God is. You wake up. Give Him praise for the fact that He ordained for you to live another day. Every day He gives you, for His purposes, a gift. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. Every day you have with your children, it's a gift. He doesn't owe you that. He's not less good if your child doesn't make it through today. There's no part of the economy of God's creation where you are owed that. So when He gives us that, that's a gift. So what do we do with that? Do we steward it for His purposes, for His glory? Or do we make it about us, sinfully, selfishly? There, there is no way to make a life in this Time and space apart from the common grace of God's illumination on us. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. This is good news. The emphasis of John here is saying the darkness cannot overpower the light. Darkness can never overcome or overwhelm light. Darkness is always conquered by the light that shines in its presence. Do you know that? You can be in an utterly airtight room that is pitch black. And light one little flickering flame of a candle. And that light will overpower the darkness in that room and illuminate what's around you. The life of God, the eternal one, the eternal life. Jesus comes into the world as the light. He lights the world. He's continuing to light the world. And so there's this simple joy that we must have just in the reality that our God decides to be present and active right now, right here. The fact that light Overcomes the darkness is also a great truth about the fact that God is holy and good. In 1 John 1.5, John writes this letter later, and, and he brings this clarity. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. And what's the message? That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. this often light in Scripture represents what is good and pure and true and holy. God is light means God is perfectly good and holy. Let's, let's ponder that for a moment. God is good. Meaning all that God is in His very being, God, God is good. And all that He does is perfectly good and he alone is the final standard of good there's such an absolute perfection in god's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defective in him nothing can be added to make it better he's perfectly good a w pink old theologian says it this way he Speaking of God is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is super added. It's a superadded quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good. He cannot be less than good he, than the good He is. As there can be no addition made to Him, no subtraction from Him. And so we must see our sin when we question any part of who God is or what He has done and call it foul, for He is perfectly good. And we, the created, the fallible, in our sin, approach Him, perceive Him, speak to Him wrong when we ascribe anything other than perfectly good to Him. That's our error, not His God is also holy. He's distinct, separate, set apart, none like God, morally pure, without sin. He's holy in relationship to every aspect of His nature and character. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. I want us to see the source of life in God this morning. The source of truth is God. If there's any hope for any of us, we need the light that is God to illuminate our lives, to bring us into life with Him forever. By His common grace, He's illuminated each person He creates. They're morally enlightened, therefore accountable before God but we are desperate for that spiritual enlightenment to see and savor God, to be given eyes to see and ears to hear apart from our heart of stone, our depraved heart, that grace of God to work, to bring forth new life. And so in this early part of this opening passage here in the Gospel of John, John sets up his entire letter the same way it sets up our Advent season this Christmas 2019 as we study how Jesus is the light of the world, the Logos, the Word, is the light. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to see this morning that light is related to truth and that it exposes whatever exists, good or bad. Good and bad can look alike in the dark. In the deception of the dark, And you know this, we've all been guilty of it, calling something bad that's good. Something good that's bad. But when the light is truly on it, when the truth is on it, we speak rightly about it. Not only can physical darkness not overcome the light, but church, the forces of darkness cannot overcome the light that is Christ. I bring you good news this morning. The world has tried, will try, in their sinful deception, but fail. Satan himself, the great deceiver himself, has spent a lifetime trying to overcome the light and failed. Consider with me, Luke, in Luke 22, 53, Jesus himself, referring to the powers of darkness, encroaching on him in his last hours before the cross, this is the hour of the power of darkness. In other words, this is when Satan and his demons are going to throw everything they got at me. But demon darkness cannot overpower the light. Amen? Darkness has tried to do it. Satan tried to destroy the messianic line from Eve all the way through, the covenantal people all the way to Christ, but he failed. Satan tried to kill all the babies In the region where Jesus was born, in an effort to shut it down, but failed to get to Jesus. Satan himself comes at Jesus, when his flesh, Jesus' flesh, is tired and hungry, bringing forth temptation like you and I have never known. But Satan failed, as Jesus proclaims the truth and shines the light on his deception. Satan does everything he can in the garden, to, to get to Jesus, who's approaching the cross, whose flesh is crying out, Take this cup from me, but no, Lord, your will be done. So Satan fails. And Jesus is victorious on our behalf on the cross, proclaiming, It is finished. Satan failed. Amen? There's good news. The darkness, all the demon darkness, all the forces of hell, and they're accommodating human evil cannot successfully shut out the light. The light shines. And it wins. Christ is the true light in contrast from all of the false lights which are in the world. All the dim lights that that are wooing and trying to call us to be in love with them, to praise them, to put our hope and our joy and our peace in them. These are counterfeits. Even the types and shadows of the old covenant that pointed to the new ultimately still all pointed to Jesus himself. Jesus is the true light. A.W. Pink again says it well. There is only one glory of the sun, the hot blazing sun, and another glory of the moon, and another of the stars. But all other lights pale before him who is the light. And I just pray as you see the twinkling lights, as you see it all around this Christmas, you start to hone in on He who is the light. And that foundation in your heart is laid and your worship goes to Him. Your conviction of your sin is is real before Him. And instead of those things being the distraction to pull us away from the one worthy of our focus and our praise, they they would... call us to remember the text and remember the truth of God that Jesus is the light, the one we celebrate, the only one through whom we have life. Jesus himself said in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Let me ask you today, do you have the light that is Christ? that shines in the darkness. Not do you know about it. The demons know about it and are damned forever. Do you have it? Have you trusted your life to Jesus? Do you belong to Him? (laughs) I pray... He brings spiritual illumination to your life this Christmas. Christian who's been distracted by the, the counterfeits, the, the possessions, put your hope and your, and, and, and your joy in these things that you'd be re-centered back on He who is Christ. The light that causes us to worship Him, to bow down and live our lives for Him. Church, will never know how big it is that God reveals the light of life to us. He brings us into eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let us worship and adore him. For the baby born in the manger is the light of the world. And if you don't know the light that is life, Scripture calls you to confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be born again. Be saved. Be part of this family that belongs to God. We're going to conclude our service this morning with a time of testimony and praise. Those who belong to Jesus, who are saved by the blood of the Lamb, those who have committed their lives to serve Jesus as Lord, are called to testify His substitutional death in the place of sinners through the symbols of the Lord's Supper on the four tables around the room, are unleavened bread and cups of wine or grape juice. These are symbols That Jesus instructed we, the church, would consume in an attitude of gratitude and praise. And they would be a public, viewable testimony of what Jesus did. And His body broken and His blood that shed to create a new covenant between God and His people. That we'd be saved. And so for those of you who trusted your life to Jesus, this is for you. That if you have been caught up in sin as of late, you would confess that sin before God. And you would not avoid the table, but eat and drink deeply, knowing that it's Christ alone you're dependent on for salvation and sanctification. If you're not yet trusted your life to Jesus, if He's not the Lord of your life, I don't care how much church you've attended, how much religion you have in your life, if you don't belong to Jesus, if you don't live for Him, then this is not for you to participate in, it's for you to view, it's for you to witness. And I pray that as you do, you would see that none of these people have earned this. If anything, every part of their doing, even their best, is why they're guilty of punishment. It's only because of Christ that they're saved. That you too would consider your sin and what it would be to trust your life to Jesus. That if God gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, you will confess your sin before him and trust your life and be forever changed and if that's the case then repent and believe and dine with us and let us know that we could walk with you in your youthful faith help you grow and be sanctified this is a time of testimony time of praise the band's going to come up and lead us in song you can go to the stations when you're ready church and eat and drink there's cup holders in the backs of the chairs and as we conclude that song, we'll finish with one more song of exultation and praise for the lowborn king. Pray with me as we move into this time. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. You are a good God worthy to be praised. You are light and, and, and within is no darkness at all. We praise you who is worthy. We thank you for life. We thank you for today's illumination in general. The grace that it is to us to live And that it's for these purposes of gospel testimony, of sanctification and and ongoing disciple-making that we continue to live, that You purpose our days for Your purposes, for Your gospel, Your disciples to be made unto the nations. That's why we're here. So Lord, let it be as we are faithful to the Lord's Supper in this time, praying that You'd bring saving faith to those who are still unbelievers greatest day of their lives to be forever changed we would long to know them and walk with them and grow with them in the truths of your word thankful for all that you are be praised we wait on you lord salvation belongs to the lord and it's you whom we praise in jesus name